Well, the Institute for American Church Growth asked over 10,000 people this question, what was responsible for you coming to Christ and to this church? 79% of those people that responded said they came because a friend or family member invited them to come. And only 3% of those who responded said they just walked in on their own. You see, I am convinced, and probably many of you are as well, that what our family, what our friends, what our neighbors are waiting to see is whether or not what we have as Christ followers is better than what they have as they journey through life without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Author and poet Oliver Wendell Holmes reportedly once said that he might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen he knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Mahatma Gandhi was quoted as saying, and probably many of you have read this, he said this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Robert Louis Stevenson once wrote in his diary, as if it were an exceptional fact, he wrote this, I've been to church today and I'm not depressed. As if the natural thing is to come here and to hear the glorious message of the gospel, the truth of God's word, and to walk out depressed and discouraged. Now honestly, those are thoughts from people who have watched Christians and they have decided that there was nothing really different from what they saw in those supposed Christ followers. Why would they ever want uh, what they saw in the lives of these people who claim to be followers of Jesus? And that's why we've been in this series now for many weeks, challenging you to not only live the life, but actually live like you love the life. Now I want to remind you, in case you're new here to Northwest, that we believe that uh, this church should be a place to introduce people to Jesus Christ and the life-changing message of the gospel, and then equip those people to live the life and then go out and have influence for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, those of you that have been Christ followers for a while and you know and understand the Word of God, I could have you this morning turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 28, uh, verses 19 and 20, and you know there that that is where we are given our mandate Jesus was getting ready to go back into heaven, and and he gave this mandate in those verses. He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's our mandate. It's very, very simple. We're supposed to go and make disciples. Have you ever asked yourself why you have been left on this planet? Many of us, I'm convinced, have bought into... Uh, the culture of our day, both secular and non-secular, which is that we are just simply here to use the buzz phrase right now, we're just simply here to occupy. We're going to occupy Wall Street. We're going to occupy downtown Raleigh and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. And guess what? We just simply occupy Cary, North Carolina. We just simply sit here, and if you live in a culture like you and I live in, it's very easy to simply get comfortable occupying, is it not? Just simply amusing ourselves with all of the things that our culture, that our society has created for us. And we simply sit and occupy. 
And yet Jesus, nowhere in that great commission, as we refer to it in Matthew chapter 28, said that I want you to just simply sit there and just occupy. Just occupy till I come. And then one day I'll blow that trumpet, and you can come be with me. But until then, just occupy. Just got to sit around. Just enjoy what this world has created for you to enjoy. No, Jesus said, I want you to go all through the world, and I want you to make disciples. Now, the question is, how do we do that? If he sent us into the world, what are we supposed to do, and how are we to do it? How are we supposed to reach people? Those friends, those neighbors, those coworkers, those people that we come in contact with that we know do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, what should be our strategy? I want to ask you to open up your Bibles if you have them, and I trust that you do. I trust you didn't come today without a Bible, but if you did, we'll give you a pass this week. Just make sure you have it with you next week. Turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16. We've looked at this passage before in the past, but I want to look at it just briefly this morning because I believe in this particular passage, the strategy that we are supposed to use, the strategy is is there for us, and it's one word. That strategy in one word is this, influence. Influence. Notice what Jesus said. He said, you're the salt of the earth. Now remember, he's preaching to a bunch of people that are sitting on a hillside. And he says to them, you're the salt of the earth. uh, Verse 14, the beginning of that verse, he says, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Now, everybody on that mountain that day, they understood what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples, you're the salt of the earth. He was referring to that which was essential for the world, necessary for the world, absolutely irreplaceable in the world. But notice the fact that he said, you are. That little phrase right there would have blown those people out of the water as they sat and listened to this great teacher when he said, you are the salt of the earth. The question is not, will you be? It's not, you can be. It is, you are the salt of the earth. It's plural, and in the original language, it's emphatic. The emphasis in the original language is, you and only you. You're it. We're the only plan that God has. He doesn't have plan B just in case we uh, aren't salt, just in case we aren't light. And so he's saying to these people, you spiritually bankrupt, you meek and insignificant, righteous, starved people that have responded to my invitation, and you're sitting here and you're listening to me on this hillside. You believe that I'm the Savior of the world. You believe that I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting for. Hey, you people... You are salt and you are light. Not the Pharisees, not the super intellectual religious leaders, not the Roman government leaders, not the wealthy landowners, not the politically connected, not any of those who we would assume God would use because they are so crucial to this world. His plan for the gospel to go to others was simply through us. And it still is today that we would be salt, that we would be light. Number one, you and I, we were made to influence other people. God's intent has been that way right from the beginning, that we are to be influencers. And I think it's interesting that Jesus says that we're salt. 
I would have preferred that he uh, say something else about us rather than we're salt. I would have loved for him to have said, you're the gold of the earth. You're the uranium. I mean, you're the silver. You are the diamonds. You are the precious few. But instead, he said something that was very common. You're the salt of the earth. I think it's a reminder that God delights in using the common things of this world. Aren't you glad for that? Because if, if, if he didn't want to use just simply the common, just simply the ordinary things, I wouldn't be sitting up here this morning. And probably many of these musicians that were up here just a few moments ago, they wouldn't be up here. But because God delights in using the insignificant, ordinary things of this world, he uses me and he uses you. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29, he said, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are, are not, so that he may nullify those things that are, so that no one may boast before God. He's just simply saying that because God has chosen the insignificant things of this world like you and like me, none of us can boast and say, hey, look how good I am. That's why God used him. That's why God uses me. We're forced to look at one another and go, wow, man, it must be God. Now, in this culture that we're uh, reading in here in Matthew chapter 5, we need to understand this, that salt was an essential part of everyday life. For many of us, even in the year 2011, it's an essential part of everyday life. Probably shouldn't be. I know we've got several doctors here, and they would tell us you ought to lay off on the salt. I say if we die, we die happy, right? So for many of us, it's an essential part of of life today, but even more so in the culture in which we're reading here in Matthew chapter 5. Just several things. It was a valuable commodity. Several of you remember me teaching on this about a year and a half ago when I told you this, that Roman soldiers sometimes were actually paid in salt. (laughs) Imagine that. Imagine going to get your last check right before Christmas and they go, hey, we got a special for you today. Rather than giving you U.S. dollars, we're going to give you salt. It's the good kind. It's the kind with the lady with with the yellow coat and the umbrella. I mean, it's the good salt. We're going to pay you in salt. It was such a valuable commodity that that's sometimes how they received their pay, certainly for the Roman soldiers. In fact, that's where we got the phrase that he's not worth his salt. It's not worth that payment. It was also a mark of friendship. For people to share salt meant that uh, they indicated the mutual responsibility to look after one another's welfare. Even if an enemy ate salt with you, you were obligated to treat him as a friend. Now, I had a meal over at somebody's house uh, this week that was just unbelievable. These are our, our, our new Swiss friends, and, and we had, um, I, I, I don't know if it's, is it raclette or raclette, the cheese? And they had this little Swiss cheese deal thing that kind of heated up the cheese, and then he brought it out from underneath that heat, and he took a knife and put it right down, and he just kept feeding me this stuff. Now, if he shared that with me, I would see that as mutual uh, love. I mean, he must really love me. He's giving me this cheese, right? In these times in which we're reading, giving salt, sharing salt, that was a mark of friendship, and also to bind a covenant. When two parties ate salt together, 
before witnesses, they would bind an agreement. We sign contracts. We might write a check saying, here's a deposit. They would say, uh, I want to buy your house. Here's some salt. Okay? So you have to understand that in this culture, just how valuable salt was. But I think it's possible that Jesus may have been referring to several characteristics of salt here in this passage, um, but one in particular. He could have been referring, some, some Bible scholars say, that he meant we're supposed to be the seasoning. You ever had a really great steak and thought, if I could just put a little bit of seasoning on top of it, it would be better? Some commentators also think that maybe he meant that we're supposed to create thirst. You ever had a lot of pizza right before you go to bed? And then about 3 o'clock in the morning, you wake up because of the salty nature of that pizza that you've eaten, and you want to go downstairs, you want to drink a gallon of, of water? Because it creates thirst. There are some Bible scholars that say, well, that's what Jesus meant. He meant that we are supposed to be so different in this culture that we create a thirst that people, when they're around us, they want to be around us even more, and they want to know what's different in us. I, I, I think that there's certainly possibilities there. But it seems in this context as if the main reference to salt here is that we are a preservative in the world around us. He was referring to the element that would preserve the world from decay, literally the very ingredient that would save the world, if only for a time. Because Christ followers were to be salty, and to understand what Jesus meant, that we're to function like salt, we have to understand that in the ancient world, the number one function of salt was not seasoning, it was not any of those other things, it was simply used as a preservative. It's hard to believe, I know for many of us, but you know there once was a day when they didn't have ice. I go a lot of places around the world where I still don't think they have ice. You know, you go into a restaurant and they, they bring you a, 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 a glass of Coke and you're going, where's the ice? They don't have ice. They don't use ice. Certainly some of you who will have the experience of going uh, to the country of Kenya and going out into the bush this next summer, and you'll be down there and you say ice, they'll have no clue what you mean. In these times, there was no ice-making machines in those days, and refrigeration was behind their wildest imagination. And so the only way to preserve meat was to salt it down and soak it in that saline solution. And that was a common practice, by the way, right into the 20th century in some remote places. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the world is decomposing and it's actually rotting away. Does anybody need to be convinced of that this morning? That's what's going on in our world. Just listen. Just listen to what's happened in, in, in the, just the last few years. It shouldn't take very much for you to go, something's going wrong. Something's not quite right. Death causes decay, and when a living creature dies, it can no longer support its cell structure, and it begins to decompose. When God created the earth and the first man and woman, everything was very much alive. And then when sin invaded this world, death also entered into the world. And with that death came decay. And I know there may be some of you here this morning, there are certainly those that are living in our world today who believe that our world is getting better and might be improved. If we just choose the right political figure a year from now, the world will be on the right path. Maybe you're one of those people. I have to say I'm not. I'm not one of those people who believes that things are just going to simply get better. Maybe you believe that if we just have enough education, if we just educate those who have no education, if we just get them technology, if we somehow become social activists, 
And if we try to, if we try to feed everybody and clothe everybody and make sure that they, health, they have health care, then somehow things will get better. And yet Paul describes in his letter to Timothy that that's not exactly what's going to happen. In fact, he says in, first, in 2 Timothy uh, 3 that in the end times, things are going to get worse and worse. Things aren't going to get better. By the way, there are some of us then who use that as an excuse to withdraw from culture in saying if the end is just it's all going to go away anyway, then I'll just withdraw over here, I'll live in my holy huddle, and we'll just let that all decay. That's not obviously what Jesus had in mind here. He said you're to be a preservative. Where there is death, where there is decomposition taking place, you ought to invade that. And stop that process, even if it were just for a time, so that people might come to understand the good news of the gospel. Now, when things decay, obviously they fall apart, don't they? Part of the result of the fall and part of the result of sin in our culture is that marriages and families are scattered. Law and order is laughed at, and the basic institutions of our society are threatened with extinction. Everything might appear okay on the outside, but on their inside, things are rotting away. And so Jesus was saying, in effect, that humanity without me is dead. It's rotting and it's falling apart. And you, my followers, you're to be the salt. And you've got to rub it into the flesh of the world, as it were, to halt decomposition. That's important for you to remember that the the salty Christian is not a self-righteous, condemning Christian person who isolates himself from the world. The only way for a salt to have effect is to be poured out and used, right? I couldn't come over to your house and you serve me these french fries that you just put, I'm going to make you hungry right now, that you put in this, um, what do they call those things? You ever see those things they call those fry daddies? John McNeese, you had one of those, didn't you? A fry daddy? You should get one. And you put those potatoes down in there and for too long those french fries are floating. If I came over to your house and you fed those to me, and, and they were laying there, and they looked so great, and there was the salt shaker, but I never actually poured out the salt. It would be of no value, right? And the same thing is true for us. If we simply isolate ourselves and don't invade the culture, we're useless. Notice he goes on to say, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Number two is this, your ability to positively influence others will be the result of choices that you make. Much of the salt in Palestine, such as that that's found at the Dead Sea, is useless because it's been contaminated by gypsum and by other impurities. And in the same way, I believe Jesus is saying that Christians who begin to behave inconsistently with who we are in Christ, we become useless. In fact, we could become harmful. It may be that there are some Christians, Christ followers, that are right here with us today. You claim the name of Jesus Christ, and yet you are harmful. Now, you can't lose your salvation, but you can be corrupted by things which will cause you to lose your effectiveness, your saltiness. Pure salt never loses its saltiness. It can only be contaminated, but it never loses its saltiness. But if salt is mixed with something else, let's say sand, or in this case uh, uh, by the Dead Sea with gypsum, it will lose its effectiveness because its its, uh, uh, pungency has been affected by the sand. 
The point is this, that we can become so infected by the world around us that we lose our saltiness. We become conformed to the world rather than the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Number three, ignoring your power of influence is to reject God's plan for your life and results in a wasted life. I wonder how many of us at the end, in January we're going to start a series and we're going to spend four weeks Uh, talking about end times. I wonder how many of us, when we come to the end, and for those of us as Christ followers, when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, at that bema, when our works are going to be judged for what we did, our our effectiveness, were, were were we obedient to the task which we've been left here to do? I wonder how many of us are going to be disappointed because we're going to come to the conclusion that we actually wasted our life. I wonder how many of us this morning, if Jesus were simply to walk aisle by aisle by aisle, and, and, and then we'd have a camera, and Jesus would point to you, and then he'd put you on the screen, and he'd, and he'd say to us, you've wasted your life. How many of us would that charge be made against? You're wasting your life. And we would give the defense, wasting but I'm doing this, I'm doing this, man, I'm coaching my son's little league team, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I roast weenies for the kids in the neighborhood, you know, and I do all these nice things. What do you mean, wasting my life? I'm a nice guy. It's possible that when we ignore the power of influence and reject God's plan for our life, that the result is a wasted life. If you don't buy into the idea this morning that you have been left here on this planet, not to simply occupy, but to be salt and light for the gospel of Jesus Christ, I would submit to you this morning that you are wasting your life, biblically speaking. Jesus said in verse 14, you're the light of the world. Not you can be, you are the light of the world. And a city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city that's set on a hill is visible uh, in the day because of its height, and it's visible at night because of its light. Verse 15, Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Number four, God expects you to maximize your influence. He expects you to maximize your influence. You know, we can't change uh, what we are. You ever want to? You ever just kind of do an evaluation of yourself and think, man, I'd really like to be like him. I'd really like to be like her. I wish God would have given me that personality. I wish God would have given me the ability to talk like that, to to do this, to be that. Because if I was that, you can't change who you are, but you can waste who you are. Just like salt can't lose its saltiness, light can be hidden under a basket. And by very definition, light must be visible if it is to be useful, right? If you take a flashlight and put your hand over the flashlight, it becomes useless. Every now and then in talking with somebody, they will tell me that their Christianity is so personal and private that they don't like to talk about it. I hear people say that. 
That'd be like me going to a restaurant where I really love the food and for me saying, it's really a private thing. It's really a private thing. I went there, I thoroughly enjoyed myself, but I can't talk to you about it. You would go, that's ridiculous. If you went to a restaurant and you thoroughly enjoyed what you ate, why won't you tell us about it? They'd rather keep their personal beliefs to themselves. And frankly, to some degree, they're half right. Christianity is deeply personal. It's not, for example, just a a mom and a dad, a husband and a wife in their home that trust Christ as their personal Savior. And as a result, the whole family is our Christ followers. In one sense, it is deeply personal. It's a decision that is made personally, whether or not to trust in Christ alone as our Savior. Following Jesus is a deeply personal decision. But being a kingdom person is a life-transforming personal commitment. It is. But it's never, ever, ever a private one. Never, ever, ever. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've known Jesus as your personal Savior. If you are a true Christ follower, it is not to be private. It is to be incredibly public. Just like several weeks ago when I told you Remember when I told you about those chicken nachos over there at Lost Trace? I I discovered uh, just a couple weeks ago that really if you order it without the chips, it's low carb, which is totally awesome, which means you can have as much of it as you want. If you're on a certain diet anyway, that works. Now, now the the guys over there, when you tell them you want chicken nachos with no chips, they look at you a a little funny. But... But for me not to tell you about that, how bad of a pastor would I be? For me just to say, I'm going to keep that private. I'm going to keep that secret. I had some sarcastic person write on my Facebook this week. And I don't write on Facebook. All I do is upload pictures every once in a while. And I share things with you, my flock, my people. Or you could get five Big Macs and five fries for 13 bucks. And I had a guy that was bold enough to go, really? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. And I respond back to him, yes, really? How could I get a deal like that and not offer you the same opportunity? You know, it's real easy to laugh about nachos or, or Big Macs or half price Goodberries, that was a few weeks ago. It's real easy for us to laugh about those things. But how ridiculous it, ridiculous is it for me to come to encounter a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ, to understand, maybe for the first time, clearly, that Jesus Christ came into this world. He suffered and bled and died on a cross for me, for my sin, that my sin debt could be paid completely in full, and that when I place my trust in Christ alone, I come into a personal relationship with the one who created me, who loves me, as we sang about earlier, more than anything else. He gives me a purpose for living. He makes my eternal destination destination secure. How crazy would it be for me to discover that and never share that with you? Never to share that with my Chinese neighbors. Never to share that with the man who fixes my car. Never share that with the coworker in the cubicle next to me. 
Never share that, high school students, with those people that you live life with, that you do life with every single day. How crazy is that? God expects us to maximize our influence. The problem is that most churches and most Christians have retreated from the world. John Stott says, rather than retreating from culture, we need to invade our culture. We seem like people, he said, who are shouting out to drowning people from the shore. Swim harder! Swim harder! You're almost... That's not what we do. We swim out there and we grab them. We throw them a life preserver. John Stott went further to say, our method must be proclamation with identification. We've got to live in the world. We've got to invade our culture. Verse 16 says this, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Notice number five, your influence will be unique. It's going to be unique. Notice Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see whose good works? Your good works. You say, well, I don't really want them to see my good works. I'll tell you what, I'll invite them to come here and let them observe your good works. Don't do that because they might be disappointed, all right? Let them see your good works. I love that. Because that means all of our influence is unique. The way that we live life. I look at so many of you right now and as I'm speaking, and I know what you do for a living. I know the place where you're invading culture. And I'm so grateful for you. Because you have opportunity for your influence to be unique. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. All right? Here's Jeff Rutledge that's sitting over here, right? Jeff's a doctor. He's a pediatrician, right? He sees people all day long that I will never, ever, ever come in contact with, certainly not in that context. His influence is unique. Have you ever been to a doctor who loves Jesus? Justin might be having some surgery here in a few weeks, and the surgeon we know loves Jesus. And as a result of that, Every time we go in, there's this comfort level that we have with this man because he knows Jesus, he loves Jesus, and it is so obvious in his office. You walk in the office, there's pictures going on a plasma screen TV, and there's all this Christian music playing in the background, and I'm thinking, man, if I was somebody that hated Jesus, I'd never come to this doctor. And yet he is one of the most sought after in his specialty, not only in this area, but in the world. He's Jesus. His influence is